personally invested in the success of any politician here. I, I really don't care, to be honest with you, who wins sort of a local election or not. I, I'm far more concerned with the sustainability of Islam, right, and sort of the, the preservation of Islam. With the US midterm elections looming, once again Muslims in the United States confront a now perennial problem. To whom should they cast their votes? Liberals promise to fight discrimination and advance minority rights, attractive to some young Muslims in particular, whilst the right look to capitalise on the culture wars by addressing some of the so-called wedge issues that provoke conservative America, including liberal abortion laws, the trans issue and the liberalisation of education. It is within this context that I held a very interesting conversation with my guest, public intellectual and activist Mabin Vaid. Mabin has been at the forefront of addressing the creeping liberalisation of social attitudes within the Muslim community and how these opinions often are way out of sync with the global Muslim ummah and Islam. Mabin's erudite commentary has looked to counter and critique these trends and today he lectures at mosques and community centres across the United States. I ask him to attempt to explain to an outsider like myself why many Muslims worry about the intellectual and social health of American Muslims and whether these perceptions are warranted. I also ask him to situate his own work within the context of these culture wars. How can he criticise the excesses of social liberalism without becoming fodder for an equally disturbing conservative right? I have to note, Mabin has moved the conversation in a positive direction in America, and I suspect many Islamic scholars who have been reticent to talk about these trends have been influenced by his straightforward yet well-researched opinions. In that sense, I see him as a thought leader. As always, some of our listeners may find some of what he says today challenging, but let's keep the conversation going. You can interact with us through our website, our social media channels, and on our new YouTube channel. Brother Mabin Vaid, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. It's really a pleasure to have you with us on the Thinking Muslim podcast. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. It's my, uh, my honor and pleasure to be on. Well, jazakallah khair for, for being with us. Now, today I want to explore a number of interrelated themes that impact the social lives of principally American Muslims and how our Muslim community has dealt with the challenges we face. You are a commentator and researcher and probably an activist uh, addressing the trans debates, LGBTQ debates, how this impacts the Muslim community. Uh, and I know that Muslims in America come in many shades. But when we assess the intellectual state of the Muslim community in America, it has now become a perception that Muslims in the States have absorbed the excesses of modern, uh, of the modern liberal mindset, more probably than others in the Western world, and are, are probably more amenable to Westernization. Now, I know this is a generalization, uh, but what is your analysis of the, the state of American Muslims vis-a-vis -vis their positioning towards Islam and, and the West? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's it's a loaded question. Yeah, I think I think the answer to that is going to be is going to depend in great measure on who you're talking about um, within America. 
Hmm. So like any community, you have different factions and you have different demographics. And those demographics relate to Islam and the Muslim community in markedly different ways. Hmm. If you're an elderly person who attends the masjid, chances are you are a bit more distant from the cultural formulations that are occurring around you. And your perception of the Muslim community is probably a lot more mundane. Yeah. If you are an activist that participates on campuses, you, depending on what campus you're on, actually, and depending on how you perceive things, your assumptions about society and culture, you may be far more bullish about the state of the community or conversely a bit more bearish and concerned about what's happening to young Muslims. And sometimes those concerns can differ as well because America has become such an intensely political society. Your fear is going to be overdetermined by your political predispositions. And so you may worry, especially today, a great deal about the type of right wing um, right wing sensibilities that are perhaps gaining steam in certain co- corners or vice versa. The fact that um, certain left wing uh, political activist currents have taken in many Muslims. And so I, I think those are both things that, um, you know, obviously are, are major causes for concern. I think nevertheless, one of the things that most Muslims here tend to be impacted by to some degree or another mm. is the fact that we are at the ep- epicenter when we talk about, you know, Westernization as a yes. general term. And we talk about the way in which Western culture is exported and universalized and serves various hegemonic imperatives. Um, it is it is America that is the vanguard of that movement. It is the principal instrument for spreading, evangelizing, and imposing various uh, you know Western liberal orthodoxies on the world and holding them to those standards. Its intellectual output uh, serves to form and shape entire disciplines, and we tend to see that the time frame between uh, the initiation and introduction of different thoughts and the spread of those thoughts and the proliferation of them throughout the world mm. is becoming increasingly narrow. Sometimes it's, there's no lag at all, whereas you know previously there used to be a long time between various intellectual social passions in the West, in America, and then when you begin to see them elsewhere. And so in some ways, America plays a uniquely, um, yeah, uniquely powerful role the global stage. And as Muslims who are situated within that context, very difficult to see the forest from the trees. That's partly why I've been writing the way I have, because so many Muslims are are as part of this social context, Mm. unselfconsciously finding their own intuitions, their deeply held beliefs. Um, You know, they're, they're finding those formed and shaped by the dominant society and you know, a great, uh, uh, a huge part of that is simply the desire to be part of the status quo, which is natural for anybody. I think it's very difficult for any individual to sit outside of the status quo, to be an outsider. I think the idea of being an outsider is fetishized, but usually it's fetishized when, um, you know, being an outsider also carries cultural and social cachet, right? When you're an outsider where that social cachet isn't present, uh, again, I, I think that's a very difficult prospect for most people to internalize, adopt, and l- let alone um, sort of defend and try to transmit uh, generationally to their children and otherwise, which is a challenge for us as Muslims, because in reality, that really is our task here now. 
I mean, how how much of this is down to uh, the failure of uh, first generation Muslims who arrived in America to recognize just the capacity of the American state to uh, to change uh, the social mindset of of Muslims. I mean, you talk about the generational divide there. Mm-hmm. I mean, can we say that younger Muslims, second and third generation Muslims, are uh, moved more in or have moved more in this progressive direction? Uh, and maybe how does this dynamic play out when it comes to family and community relations? Uh, in their defense, I'd say that they arrived at a time where the intensity of that uh, of that uh, sort of social contagion and peer pressure was not nearly as acute as it is now. We came to America at a time where we didn't have the internet or various technologies, where public media was much more tempered and mild. Um, and in, in many respects, they were much more concerned about creating alternative institutions and countercultural spaces than younger Muslims are today. One of the interesting phenomenons where you'll find this is just the idea of friends circles or social networks. Um, many of the first generation Muslims that came here, and we're talking specifically about the immigrant Muslim generation that came in the 70s. If one were to attend, you know, a wedding for one of those individuals who came here, or perhaps a social function, a gathering, or a janaza, I don't think it, it I'll say it's very, very uncommon to actually see a non-Muslim at any of those spaces, right? Like their social circle was just principally and almost exclusively people like them, um, often ethnically like them and religiously like them. And that's that's the type of social reality that they instituted from the, for themselves and just made a part of their lives. Their children don't have those same um, loyalties and commitments, and partly because they don't have to. They're socially much more integrated. They, their thoughts, their values, their ideas, their passions, their likes, dislikes resonate much more at times with just the average friend in school. Um, you know, Islam doesn't play as, as significant a role in their personal identity. And so, you know, that's something that I've witnessed where I'll go to, you know, weddings on occasion and you'll see a very large number of non-Muslims, for, for instance, friends, as someone will pass away. And at the janazah, you'll see a collection of non-Muslims just kind of standing there in solemn observation and, you know, offering condolences or something like that. And in some way, I think that's that's a very significant development because it's suggestive of the type of social reality that people are part of and how they're negotiating their faith within it, which is not encouraging at all. Um, and so I, I think I, I think to a large extent, they perhaps didn't anticipate those changes, but those changes, I don't know that anybody did. I don't think anybody really anticipated just how fast the world was going to move, especially after the internet. And especially, and even more so once you start combining different geopolitical events like 9-11 and things like that. I mean, those, those, were, those were tremendous accelerants. I think people were scrambling to try to make decisions. I think in hindsight, some of those decisions were quite poor and have had lasting consequences on the, on, uh, on the community here. I want to talk about those social realities. I mean, how much of this is just natural? I mean, we are minorities who live in the West and we have to live and work with others, uh, many of whom uh, may be identified as gay or straight. Uh, and in a way, this requires a level of toleration that I suspect Muslims in the past never needed to develop, right? We have to interact with these people. Some of them are our bosses. Some of them are our schoolmates. And 
you know, one can't live in a permanent state of animus with, uh, with people around us. I have found that in recent years, that level of mixing has led to an acceptance, especially with young Muslims, of some of the intellectual assumptions that come out of, say, the gay and trans movements. Uh, for example, the idea that people have natural sexual preferences and their identities should be formed around these sexual preferences. I mean, can you speak to this uneasy toleration we have to develop in the West towards uh, identities that we may primarily have a problem with and how that's shifted our moral standpoint? That's a, that's a really good question. I think there are a couple of things that tend to go on. I think certainly there is the impact and influence of just who you surround yourself with. And when you are integrated into certain social spaces and you're part of that society, you're bound to be impacted by it. But I think a big part of what impacts people socially today is increasingly the public religion of the West, which is dominated and defined by public politics. And so, uh, you know, you'll find people, for instance, who are politically liberal and work with conservatives, and they may be on friendly terms with them in the workplace. But that doesn't lead to them having any greater sympathy for conservatism, right? In fact, they may hold a great deal of animus for conservatism. They're able to compartmentalize the way in which they navigate human relationships and how those human relationships impact or don't impact their personal beliefs and convictions, which they believe are good for society and the world. I was, in fact, reading uh, reading an article um, a few days ago from the Institute on Family Studies. Uh, which is an organization here in the West. That's Brad Wilcox and his group based out of the University of Virginia. And the article was talking about how rare it is these days to find um, marriages occurring between people of different political um, commitments. So political orientation being something that is now suggestive of almost a faith-based, you know, significance, right? That the significance of that faith used to constitute is now being given to people's politics, which is to say that those politics are increasingly um, playing religious-like roles or religious functions. And, you know, historically, it was very rare for interfaith marriages to to occur because people considered faith to be really consequential, right? And even to the point of denominational differences being something that really bore major consequence. You didn't see, you know, people interdenominational marriages within different churches, for instance. That simply didn't happen very often. Um, and certainly that's been the case in Muslim communities where you have people who had sectarian differences, for instance, and they wouldn't necessarily intermarry because they found those theological differences to be very meaningful. In the West, we're seeing more and more of that play out in the political space because politic- politics is coming to um, take on the role of religion insofar as an- it answers major questions. It provides people means by which they can understand their place in the world. It gives them a sense of meaning. It provides them a clear sense of what is ethical, what is good for society, how we can pursue the question of human flourishing. It's doing all of that. And where some of these liberal social trends tend to situate themselves or fit in is that they become subordinate to the politics of the world today. And so it's not just a function of me working with someone who identifies on the basis of his or her sexual predispositions or preferences, um, you know, that I have a colleague or coworker who has, you know, identified to me as gay or lesbian. Suddenly now I have to work with that person. 
but it's also being part of a social context where that person's reality is constantly being presented to me in the media as a moral positive, where I'm receiving instruction in school, reinforcing that narrative and regarding any divergent from it as bigoted and hateful. It is my politics is making that person uh, a sort of cornerstone of a larger political project of inclusion and tolerance and care and empathy and compassion. It is political actors talking very openly, even in religious terms. You know, just the other day I was reading a Democratic politician in Virginia who was asked about how she um, how she answers concerns from constituents. And this particular politician was advocating, and I, I don't think it got much headway, but she was advocating a bill that would criminalize in various ways um, parental intervention in the case of children who want to transition. Right. Who want to transition. The idea being that if a parent doesn't affirm that child fully, there could be legal consequences to that. And that's, that's the type of bill she was in favor of. And they asked her about it. And it was, it was really interesting to read her response because it's, it's one thing for someone to say, well, we all have our own morals, we have our own values, we have our own religions, but we live in a secular society and we can't govern that society on the basis of your religious commitments or mine. But instead, she actually said, well, this is actually what the Bible teaches. It teaches tolerance for all. And it's if people aren't, if that's not the example of Jesus that they have, well, they need to go back and reread the Bible as if to say that, no, like their, their interpretation of religion is actually at fault. It's not my issue. It's their issue that they have adhered to a religious understanding that's outdated and misinformed. And which, which I think is quite telling. You know, I don't think most politicians would have been as brazen enough to tell people that they don't understand their own religion. Mm. Um, but that she certainly did. And, and you know, I, I found that as well, you know, during the, uh, during the Democratic debates, there was a town hall, which was really outlandish mm. on LGBT and the Democratic Party. The nominees were as part of, part of this town hall. And Elizabeth Warren was asked a very similar question. I think she identifies as Catholic, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, but in any event, she, she was asked about her Christianity and, you know, does she ever have to struggle with the Bible? And she said, no. She said, what I, what I learned from the Bible, what I learned from Sunday school, what I learned from the church growing up was a message of tolerance that every human being is endowed with a certain sense of dignity. And again, there is, there is, there is by implication, a message that's being conveyed there, that if you're not affirming the LGBT platform in its current incarnation, what you're doing is you're actually not conveying to people the type of dignity that they deserve and the type of dignity that God has endowed to them and, and uh, guaranteed them. And so now the stakes of our political decisions, and what we're doing become much, much higher, right? We're no longer dispassionate political actors that are just part of a society trying to determine what prudent taxation looks like. We're actually hedging on what is ethical and what is moral. And that is a significant problem for us as Muslims in a society where our politics, obviously, we don't have a regnant political party that aligns neatly with our own religious views. 
right, and our own values. And, you know, when, when your own views and values don't have any currency or are very, very far out of lock, lockstep with um, sort of the bipartisan consensus, if you will, um, again, you're going to find fewer and fewer people that find that understanding or, frankly, that religion itself as tenable. But how do you square that position? You, you mentioned the, the Democratic, uh, the lady from the Democratic Party who was endorsing uh, a position where the state would define what a good religion would look like on the issue of trans rights or LGBTQ rights. But how do you square that way of thinking with uh, traditional notions, traditional notions of liberalism? Uh, that uh, tends to look at the state as a neutral arbiter. The state steps back and allows human beings to live their own lives, uh, their own version of the good life without intervention. And so in, in that type of conception of uh, of the liberal state, Muslims should be free uh, to, to live lives where they adhere to Islamic social attitudes and on these issues and and so should Christians and and atheists would have their own perspectives, but the state doesn't intervene. I mean, how do they uh, square uh, this modern notion of an interventionist state with more classical notions of uh, a state that steps away? I, I don't think we actually have a very active public debate that wrestles with questions of liberalism anymore. Mm. Um, perhaps that occurs in some academic corners. You know, people like yeah. Francis Fukuyama lament this, right? So he'll he'll write articles about how the problem with the woke left or the progressive left and the alt-right is competing visions of anti-liberalism. Mm. And the solution for a moment is re- returning back to a classical liberalism. And so mm. he sees a classical liberalism as something that would provide that type of public space for people yeah. with competing personal interests. And it would reduce some of those tensions, right? That to him is the self of our moment. I, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of things to be said for that. To, to your question, one is whether or not that sort of classical view of liberalism was ever tenable, even conceptually, right? Do you ever have, uh, what does it mean to have a neutral state? What does it mean to have a state in which, you know, you, you provide a maximalist notion of rights where everybody can pursue their own ends so long as you're not violently imposing yourself on someone else. And what does that look like in the real world? And how how often does the state actually have to intervene in making decisions? I think if you were to talk to people today, they'd say that the state has a responsibility to achieve certain ends. And uh, we find this even in, you know, what is it in the constitution, promoting the general welfare. Mm. Right, provide for the common defense. What's the role of the government? Promoting the general welfare, mm. right, and ensuring justice and liberty. Right, those are the types of things that are enshrined in constitutional writ in this society. And so, what does it mean to promote general we- welfare? It means to protect our most vulnerable. They would say something like transgenderism is and is obviously a minority reality and young children who are not affirmed are the most vulnerable of us and that can lead to uh you know deleterious psychological outcomes and in order to mitigate the likelihood of those outcomes actually coming 
yeah, into reality, what we have to do is offer a political and legal apparatus that's going to support them in situations where they're otherwise unsupported. I mean, this would be the equivalent of looking at that parent as a type of abuser, mm. right? If, if a parent was abusive and imposing him or herself on, uh, on his children, uh, the state would intervene, right? The state would feel responsible for intervening and perhaps even removing the child from its home. And uh, that's that's increasingly how these types of things are being viewed. That if you're if you're sort of being that, and, and in fact, people, you know, this is actually one of the arguments when the new atheist movement was very active. Mm. The new atheist movement used to speak often about uh, they used to use the term spiritual abuse, which mm. is taking on new meanings today. Right. But they found actually the teaching of religion, period, to children as a type of abuse because they felt that young people were not sufficiently capable of consenting to something that was that important, that was that consequential, that was going to be that definitional for the remainder of their lives. Mm. Instead, they felt that there should be legal and policy guidelines to force parents to provide children a more ecumenical Mm. theological education where they actually experience different religions, And then when they come of age, they have the opportunity to choose. And so now it's it's the state actually uh, playing the role of defining for parents what a proper raising of children look like. Now, obviously, I think to most normal people, that, that type of rhetoric was insane. The idea that just taking your child to the church growing up or to your mosque growing up constitutes a type of abuse is nuts. But now when you look at sort of what we're going through in our moment with various liberal views of what it means to be a good parent, we're starting to see that a very similar type of dialogue in a, albeit in a different context, Um, but we're seeing a very similar dialogue because the idea is that, well, should, how much latitude should we grant parents to raise their children with a, you know, with a set of beliefs that are anchored in hate? because if their parents do that, we all as a society pay the cost. And the same way that we wouldn't simply tolerate parents teaching their children racism, right? Like we we make active efforts to create a society that is racially inclusive and that allows everybody to understand just how damaging racism is. We should treat all of these other things as essentially on par with racism, right? I've been, I've been following uh, the heated discussion in Dearborn, Michigan, where a school board meeting was attended by many hundreds of concerned Muslim parents, I think mostly of Arab uh, ethnic uh, origin. And the debate was over the choice of pro-gay books uh, in local schools. Uh, can you explain the background to this meeting and why it has received so much publicity? So I haven't followed it too closely, but I know some of the broad strokes of what's happened or transpired, at least based on what I've read online. Um, the The offending book is a book that appears to have been written for children, right? So you're talking about a book that targets children mm. or its target audience is kids between second and fifth grade. And the book is entitled I think it's This Book is Gay. Yes. That's the title of the book. It is an extremely, um, it's just very salacious. Uh, you know, the, the, the content in it is very lurid sexually. It is extremely descriptive. It has lots of images in it and illustrations. 
Uh, it's the type of book that most decent people wouldn't want their child to read. And that book has become a sort of powder keg for more deeply held grievances against the school board. And this book is now becoming a conduit to a larger cultural war that is taking place here between left left wing groups yes. that want to see schools um, endorse their own sexual and gender fashions and parents that want their children to be protected from that. And so you're seeing very intense, emotionally intense dialogue that's occurring in these spaces. And I think what makes Dearborn significant in this regard is that it's the first instance that I'm aware of where this type of debate is playing out in, and the primary objectors are people who are non-white. Right? So, so you've had some of these debates occur probably at lesser, to lesser degrees in different school counties. Um, but the, the objectors were typically right-wing Christians that have shown up to these meetings. And I think more often, candid, those debates have occurred over issues like critical race theory. I think that's been probably a bigger concern for them than the whole LGBT issues. Um, here, what you're seeing is a intersection of a community whose religious commitments still matter. And so even some of the protesters and people who are attending these meetings, the type of posters they're bringing, many of those posters are in Arabic. Um, they refer to things like the Quran, the Prophet Lut, you're seeing these type of references very explicit. And so these are people who are being driven in great measure by their faith and their belief as Muslims. And they're outraged um, as a result of that. And you're also seeing a dynamic where many of them are immigrants. And so for some people, that becomes a source of mockery, right? Many of these people, sometimes you'll have a poster where there are things misspelled, or perhaps you have a person who is messaging his disagreement in a way that doesn't, isn't entirely coherent in English. And so mm. that gets pounced upon to mock and ridicule those people. Um, but you're also seeing a real difficulty for, I think, some people on the left, right? And this is actually locally there. It has become a, a source of tension between Muslims. Um, who are liberal themselves and who don't want this type of debate to occur, who want the parents to stand down, who have endorsed this idea of inclusion and feel that these, these parents are actually, uh, you know, embarrassing them to various degrees. Like it's, it's quite embarrassing for them to be associated with these families, these communities. And so you're seeing at local levels, tension within the Muslim community itself between different factions. And then you're also seeing just a number of political dynamics that are coming together as part of this public debate. Um, I, I think it's a very important one because if, if you look at a place like Dearborn with its concentration of Muslims, if they're unable and incapable of standing up over issues like this, what hope do smaller suburban Muslim communities have? have a fraction of, the, of their Muslim population don't have the authority or muscle that they have politically and locally because they have people on the school board, governor, mayor, I mean, all those things, they're very heavily represented throughout the area. Um, and so if they're unable to affect change with their numbers, then what hope does sort of the rest of us have? But, but I know that the Muslim mayor, the Democratic mayor, Abdullah Hamoud, uh, stood against the ban of these books. Um, and um, actually, tell me, how the, does the school board system work? 
uh, in the United States. Um, I mean, how democratic in inverted commas are these boards? Uh, do parents have the right to block what schools would determine to be uh, appropriate teaching aids? I mean, for example, here in the UK, we have a school governor system that's probably very weak and, and central government uh, policy overrides parental consent, especially when it comes to Muslims. And as you know, across Europe, uh, Muslims have even less control over their children's schooling. Um, do Muslims in, in America have more power when it comes to these types of uh, teaching aids that are used in schools? Not really. And school boards here in most years are pretty uneventful. Uh, most school boards will, in fact, discuss things that are logistical, more so than focusing on the actual education that's taking place in school. Right. So school boards don't really come in and say, well, we need to change our curriculum or we need to or we don't like the way this topic is being taught. Mm -hmm. That typically isn't the case. Most of your school board meetings deal with things like extracurricular activities, funding, budgetary allocation, school expansion, districting guidelines, a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. And so school board elections tend to occur in ways that fly under the word radar. Um, people can win a school board seat without a huge number of votes. In recent years, school boards have become, you know, that position has become a lot more magnified because it's the only venue in which um, parents can actually express their grievances. And because we've had a couple of these cultural war issues where school boards have been at the center of them, suddenly now they've become locations of major debates. Um, some of these issues, especially the ones like LGBT, um, the topic of critical race theory, which Chris Rufo and others have covered, uh, a lot of those issues have, um, a lot of those topics have been introduced into the school system through, through school boards. So at times you do have uh, you do have teachers that go maverick and decide on their own that they need to change their own teachings and school curriculums. Mm. But more often what we're seeing are school boards make decisions that say, hey, our entire county now is going to regularize a particular form of education that's going to be introduced to all of our curriculums beginning at X grade. And that curriculum is going to be put together through the consultative work of a a consultation group that's being brought in that has expertise, quote unquote, on issues like LGBT and this issue and that issue. Mm. And so now those, you know, you have kids suddenly that come home very young ages, having, having been taught those subjects. You're also seeing some of these curriculum changes decided at the state level. And so you have state, state legislatures now that are passing laws. You have at least seven states in the country that have passed laws like that um, on LGBT specifically where sex and gender teachings now are being enforced at the state level. And so, you know, the, the, there is, you know, there's an extent to which some of these things are happening. And, you know, even if you win, for instance, this debate in Dearborn over this book, mm. the larger zeitgeist is continuing to move in a particular direction. And there is, you know, I, I don't know how much we can, we can completely overhaul any of this. To a large extent, Muslims do need to invest a great deal in alternative institutions and alternative spaces and Islamic schools. They need to consider and think deeply about homeschooling because, um, you know, the manageability of these issues continues to go down year after year. Um, what I found interesting is that Dearborn uh, is solidly democratic. Joe Biden won 74 percent of the vote in 2020. And I think in the primaries, Bernie Sanders defeated Biden. Um, 
So it is a it is a, a democratic homeland. Um, and, and I suspect both Biden and Sanders would side with the schools over the community on, on this issue. Um, now, many Muslims, I feel in the States, are overwhelmingly democratic in, in their support. How do factors like this, social liberalism, uh, the teaching of uh, of um, obvious fahisha in in schools, how does how does this inform uh, the political decision making of of the community there? Yeah, I think I think most Muslims tend to vote democratic, simply because there is such a palpable sense that conservatives and Republicans hate them, right? And so, you know, so long as that's the case, you're going to keep voting Democratic almost no matter what. I think some of that's beginning to change because I, I think conservatives have realized in recent years that they need a broader coalition, that winning the white male vote isn't enough to take down elections. So you're starting to see this transition, for instance, with the greater number of Latinos voting Republican. Um, the statistics are actually uh, shifting dramatically. We're seeing some major shifts there. We're also seeing more African-Americans that are abandoning the Democratic Party. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see that with Muslims as well. We're starting to see greater political diversity in the Muslim community. Again, those things aren't necessarily positive because it still recapitulates the problem of people who are identifying themselves on the basis of a political party or a partisan project which itself is a major issue, especially when we start talking about religion and faith in ways that don't accord or coincide with, um, you know, a partisan platform. Nevertheless, I think you're starting to see more diversity there. Uh, I think in most of these issues, we're, we're starting to see some fault lines that people sort of understood were there, but we haven't necessarily ha- contended with in, in a long time. And so, you know, you mentioned Abdullah Hamoud, um, Rashida Tlaib, Rashida Tlaib as well. Um, she came out and in fact referred to the protesters as extremists. I think that was the specific term she used, which I was, I was, I was really shocked by, given how loaded that term is and how consequential that term is, especially for Muslims. I mean, for a Muslim to be called an extremist by anybody today is something that, especially when you consider the, nat- the nature of the national security state, um, the securitization of of Muslims in the West. And that's huge. That really is. And for her to say something like that about them, I thought was totally atrocious and out of line. Mm. And she didn't get much scrutiny, at least from what I saw, for expressing those sentiments and for using those words. Right. And I, I remember a few years ago, just talk about another anecdote. I remember a few years ago, there was an event in DC that I attended. It was called the uh, National Muslim Caucus. And it was a collection of Muslims that are politically active throughout the United States. And there was a speaker at this event who's relatively well-known um, political actor, various sorts. And this speaker, I remember from the main session, was talking about, um, and it was just interesting to listen to him. He was talking about how inconvenient in many ways the Muslim community is for him. And the specific inconvenience he was talking about is that, you know, and not using these exact terms, saying that here we are as people who are really involved in Capitol Hill activity. We understand politics. We have an enlightened sense of where society should be going, and we understand how that should relate to us as a community. And here we have a community that we have to report back to that's very backwards. And he used a mock uncle accent. And he used this, he was mocking these uncles talking about how they come up to him concerned about his stance 
at least his stances that he's held in the past on marijuana as well as homosexuality. Mm. And the crowd all started laughing, right? They, they got a good chuckle out of that. But I thought, I, I, was, I was really shocked, right? To just see, witness this entire thing playing out because it was far more explicit than the fellow normally would have been perhaps in his own masjid or in his own community. He would have been more circumspect, mm. perhaps more sensitive, sympathetic and sensitive, right? Typical politician behavior. Yes. But in those settings, I, I guess, you know, what, what people feel in their hearts tends to come out. Right. And I think many Muslims have felt these types of differences for some time. It's the type of feeling sometimes you'll, ha- you'll, you'll sense from a child towards his parents yes. where, yes. oh, my parents are sort of from back home. They don't really get our society anymore. Yes. And that's a very typical generational difference. Yes. But this, yes. is now, this is now, you know, an entrenched part of your community where you have some people who, you know, almost look at members of their own faith and his own community with, you know, almost a sense of derision, right? Mm-hmm. That these these people are uninformed, unintelligent, backwards. Like they just they just harbor the most negative beliefs about them, and they harbor those beliefs because those people are driven so deeply by Islam, and that's the problem, right? It's not as if these people are coming here and saying, "Oh, you know, we need to have more Arab food in our grocery store or more," you know. Why don't we have desi desserts being sold at, you know, this restaurant? I mean, they're, they're not just bringing like strange and obscure ethnic grievances to the table that someone might laugh at or chuckle at. Yeah. They're bringing up concerns that they have that are rooted in Islam. And on the basis of that, they're finding themselves subject to scrutiny and ridicule and mockery. And these people are writing them off. And that that is a major concern, especially because, you know, not only because of that, but also because of the fact that many of the people who are with these beliefs are now spokespeople in the community, right? If you attend a Muslim conference, you attend major Muslim events, these are the people now who many of them have voices and platforms where they're speaking to Muslims and instructing them and guiding them about how to be active, about the future of Muslims in the West and this and that, and American Muslims and being an American Muslim, the entire dialogue, they're suddenly now the influential voices guiding it. So um, that's a big reason why I've tried to spend the time that I have writing on subjects like this. You alluded to earlier on uh, that there are dangers uh, that are associated with both the left and the right. I would like to focus on on the right because uh, the Dearborn uh, case showed us that Muslims can build alliances with uh, the Christian right. Now, many of those Christians who call for the banning of these problematic books, such as the organization Moms for Liberty, belong to a very hard right of the Republican Party. In many cases, they're Trump loyalists and subscribe to uh, extremely strong anti-Muslim positions. I, I know this action was not a political one in, in its sort of primary sense, but it is certainly being used by politicians to garner support. How worried are you about the general culture wars and how that feeds into uh, some of these micro issues we face in our communities? Yeah, well, I'm very concerned because I think a lot of these issues have uh, theological connotations to them. Mm. And, the you know, the politics is now a theologizing space. Mm. And so the more deeply entrenched people are politically, the more difficult it is that, for them for to extricate themselves 
right. from that context. I think about the Muslim community response, both in sort of real life and online, to the repealing of Roe. And it's, it's one thing for Muslims to suddenly use that opportunity to re-explore and rediscover the fiqhi discussions on ijhad mm, and nuances. What, yes. What, yes, abortion and what scholars have said on the subject. Mm. It is an entirely different thing to emotionally unravel in the name of right and left-wing politics the mm. way they do and mm. to engage with Islam in an entirely instrumental capacity in order to defend one political party or the other. Mm. And when Islam becomes so deeply instrumentalized, a plaything for my politics, mm. it becomes trivialized. It's, it's something that I am simply using um, for my own sort of services and purposes, but it's not something that really drives me, motivates me. Um, uh, you know, it is, you know, when, when we think about Islam as sort of the path of otherworldly salvation, the significance of the Quran and Sunnah and all of that, I mean, those things really fall by the wayside because what is now motivating me mm. is political victory and whatever is going to bring that about is, is congenial to my own activism and that's the end of it. I mean, on the issue of Roe v. Wade, I mean, I, I was struck by how many young Muslims on social media were openly opposed to the judgment without any nuance or reservation or even a bid to reconcile their position with, with Islam. Many of them were self-identifying uh, as practicing Muslims, but also progressive Muslims. Um, I mean, how do we shift this mindset that seems to occupy large portions of of young Muslim uh, young Muslims? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, there's an extent to which we may not be able to simply because the the discourse here is so overwhelming that you know a large number within our community are likely going to be affected by it, no matter what. The forces are simply too strong. Yeah. Um, the the voices are too loud. The spaces are too many. And one of the things that's interested me over the last couple of weeks is just how much interest there's been in the midterm elections. Yeah. Now, traditionally speaking, American society has always been more politically engaged when there's a presidential election. Mm. And historically, when I was growing up, you know, we, you had the debates between like, you know, when Bill Clinton was running for office and things yeah. like that. Yeah. It would usually be a couple of weeks before the presidential election where some of those debates would start getting cast on TV people would watch them but you know the rest of your four years or so you really didn't pay close attention to the day-to-day politics and you you just had less campaigning occurring because people weren't as engaged back then Mm. now it's been months of very active campaigning i mean months of campaigning and uh you now have televised debates for even local positions at the state level, sometimes even more, you know, district level debates. Mm-hmm. And those debates are being watched actively. You know, YouTube, you can have a debate between two politicians in Pennsylvania or in Atlanta. And those debates are now matters of national interest and they're getting millions of views. Mm-hmm. And so the spectacle of politics is now taking over our society in various ways. It's, it is the constant sort of reality TV show of the West that everybody is, is following, especially in America. And so, you know, I'm very concerned now when we talk about how, how can Muslims sort of decrease the or deflate the intensity which, which they, they are following and having politics sort of guide their own lives. 
I think we need to have a discourse that shows that it's not beholden the politics of our day. And I think that we need, we need confident and courageous religious leaders who are willing to come out and not fear the consequences of standing for Islam and what Islam has to say in circumstances where it is politically inconvenient for them to do so. I think one of the I think one of the worst things that's happened here is that we have many Muslims who recognize just how deeply politics has influenced Muslims, and as a result of that, they have become politically calculated actors themselves because they want credibility with different political spaces. They want to be able to appeal to the left-leaning Muslim. They want to be able to appeal to the centrist Muslim. They want, you know, there are different communities and groups and constituencies that is now their primary demographic that they're speaking to. And because they're speaking to that demographic, they become less willing to come out on issues that that is um, that are going to ruffle the feathers of that group. And I think that's very unfortunate because most people can put two and two together. And I think when your community discourse, when your religious discourse is so beholden to politics and you know the preferred politics of a segment of your community what in fact you're doing is you're contributing in really deep and meaningful ways to the politicization of your faith. And that's, that's, that's huge to me. Yeah. I mean, talking to that, um, from my side of the, of the Atlantic, I mean, I've, I've recognized that for, for many years, probably, uh, Muslim scholars and religious leaders have been, uh, siding with the progressive left, uh, probably as a result, it, it probably comes from a good place. Um, you know, after the war on terror, during the war on terror, there was intense scrutiny on the Muslim community. And many on the left supported our calls, um, especially when uh, the increased securitization of our, our community led to, uh, you know, some very uh, deep injustices against uh, individual Muslims. But I think it, this has been at the expense of towing a soft line towards these uh, social progressive ideas. Um, t- tell me about that. And has there been a reset in that thinking um, in, in recent years? Well, one, one of the things that I think the left has done very masterfully is that they have championed a very specific type of inclusion when it comes to their own political project. Mm-hmm. In fact, they've made, they, they almost defined what inclusion looks like and how it occurs in society. And in that way, they've been able to form diverse coalitions that are I- ideologically homogenous, but racially, and, 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 and racially diverse and diverse in an identitarian capacity, right? And what that does is says, hey, it's it's kind of interesting, right? We we can all be part of this project together, right? Black, white, Muslim, Christian, whoever, so long as we all agree on the same things, mm-hmm. right? I remember, um, I remember, I think it's the the Iowa caucus, right? The, uh, Iowa, which is always the big swing state yes, during yes. Uh, when when people are sort of jockeying for the presidential nomination. You had. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who was running in Iowa. And there was a woman who asked him in Iowa um, whether or not there was space within his party and within sort of his campaign and platform for a woman like her, who was deeply democratic, like she was a Democrat and left-leaning, 
but but she was intensely pro-life. Like, could could she be a pro-life Democrat? And Buttigieg responded in a somewhat surprising way by saying that I, I'm not going to lie to you to win your vote, right? I'm not going to lie to you to win your vote. I am pro-choice and I am firmly pro-choice. And in so many words, he basically told this woman, no, there really isn't space. Like, I'd love to have you vote for me, but there probably isn't a lot of space for you as part of our campaign, as part of our party, as part of a project. Mm. The only the only way that there can be space for you is if you're willing to overlook this issue and look at all the other issues that we're in agreement with and focus on that and just keep your reservations on this issue to yourself, right? And so there is a type of ideological litmus test that's occurring mm. in these political spaces today. Uh, but how about the uh, religious establishment there in, in the United States? I mean, you know, Muslim scholars have been criticized for... Um, at the very least, showing silence or being silent over some of these social issues. Well, I think I think most I think that criticism has really come about over the past I don't know four to five years. I think yeah. I think if you were to look at what's happened in the past decade or so, the ascendance of the progressive movement really reached its peak. I'd say under the second term Obama. And then with and then with the Bernie Sanders movement, the introduction of the AOC campaign and everything else, I, I think this has really driven very large public um, response, especially from young people. And you've had many Muslims that have been captured, their imagination, their concerns, everything has been captured by the entire movement. And so now what you're seeing is a public backlash to it, right, from people who were either previously part of the movement or a public that was previously silent when that movement was making increasingly aggressive demands and they're not tired of them. Um, so, so you're seeing sort of that, that group getting criticized alongside mainstream institutions that are starting to criticize them more and more. So it's not uncommon these days even to find in mainstream establishment media op-eds that are being run criticizing different progressive ideas. You know, just uh, three days ago, I was reading an op-ed in the New York Times, and that was, um, you know, Pamela Paul's op-ed entitled, Let's Say Gay. Mm. And her entire critique was over this amorphous notion of what it means to be queer and how that term queer has become Mm. dominant insofar as it encourages a type of sexual and gender diversity, but in so doing, it actually eliminates and sort of elides differences that we used to recognize previously as more meaningful as far as people are lesbian or gay or whatever, right? So again, that's that's a type of progressive critique that is now occurring and being published in the New York Times, something that probably would not have run or been done a couple of years ago. And so I think Muslim scholars in some ways are, are simply being subject to similar forms of critique because they themselves went headfirst into progressive politics on their own. They began espousing progressive rhetoric. They sided with progressive politicians. They went to campaign rallies. We had masjids that were caucusing for different political candidates. Wow. I, I think in many respects, they did compromise themselves politically, and now they are trying to recover their reputations um, with people who look at that as uh, as 
uh, an unfortunate political movement or just a political movement that they perceive as immature, mm. as imprudent, as young, entitled, um, you know, just, just all of those sort of disparaging characteristics are now being imputed onto that movement. And I, I don't know that many of them anticipated that that would have occurred, right? It, and it's interesting. I remember when the political progressive movement was rising and many people were saying, hey, we just, the Muslim community at this moment, we have to come together for Bernie Sanders. We just have to come together for Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And I wrote something publicly about the Ron Paul movement, which was sort of a precursor to Sanders in various mm-hmm. ways. You know, mm-hmm. Ron Paul, the famous libertarian, yeah. um, who in a peculiar uh, set of events becomes this really, you know, popular political actor, old in age, sort of on the back end of his career, similar to Bernie Sanders, right? In the back end of his career after decades in politics, um, is sort of votes in very obscure and eclectic ways, comes out and has this platform that people are captured by and taken in by and find very interesting because in certain ways it it offers something that no one else does, certainly at a time when, you know, interventionism, global war on terror and all that is very active. And here's this conservative saying that you shouldn't do it. It's a waste of time. It's, it's you know, it goes against the constitution. It's just that, and suddenly it's very, very attractive. You had plenty of people that went headfirst into libertarianism, the Ron Paul movement. Um, but then it died out, right? It took a few years, but it died out. He had two elections where he was, where his movement and he himself was pretty strong and received a lot of coverage. Um, but it didn't survive. It didn't survive. And what tends to happen with outside movements, political movements like this, is that their core ideas tend to get assimilated into the status quo in various ways, such that their lure and their appeal is not as interesting. And a lot of their more marginal positions become magnified. And so suddenly now they get defined more and more by the marginal positions. I think that's what's happened with progressivism, where a lot of the core concerns they have, that they have, have been um, assimilated into the Democratic Party status quo, which has done a lot to undermine their pretensions to being an outsider or renegade group. Hmm. And now they have to hang their hat on their more marginal positions, which are deeply unpopular. And so this is, I think, put put those scholars who really went very deeply into progressive politics in a precarious position where now that association hasn't necessarily declined. Although I think there's an effort on the part of most of them to say, hey, hey, we were, you know, that's like, we're now focusing more on religion, we're recognizing, perhaps in some ways, the damaging nature of public politics in ways that we didn't appreciate previously. And we're recognizing that we have, it's not that we don't have a politics, that that we have to have a politics that's different. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's something you're seeing. Um, Perhaps some would say too little, too late, but I think we're seeing that, seeing some positive developments on that front here in America. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a majority development, but I think more and more people are waking up to this and saying, "Look, we just we can't just find ourselves in such a compromised political state anymore." What we what we are beginning to see very early steps towards are those people who can actually take that recognition and channel it into a form of public da'wah that is willing to come out on issues that, as I said previously, are not convenient. And I think a lot more people are waiting for that to get regularized. They're waiting for 
people who don't seem to be beholden to the latest political debate and can simply speak honestly as trained religious scholars about Islam, not caring what people are going to say about it, right? And I think that there is an appetite for a person who is sort of thoughtful, sensitive to the social and cultural context in which we find ourselves engaged with the issues of the day, but not a shill for liberal or conservative politics. Mabin, would you consider yourself to be a conservative Muslim? Uh, probably not. I mean, I, I don't. Uh, I don't sort of uh, describe myself with any adjectives, right? I mean, it's, it's... yeah. You campaign against um, the the encroachment of LGBTQ uh, within sure. our circles and trans rights, and you know that would be. Uh, in in the broader sense, that would be uh, located as a conservative position. Yeah, I, I think it certainly would be. Um, well, now today, a majority of Republicans are in favor of gay marriage. And so, you know, in that sense, I, I'm probably to the right of the right on an issue like LGBT, right? In certain yes. respects, and in certain respects, I'm more conservative than the conservatives on some of these issues, right? Um, but I, again, I, I think what... I would sort of ask a person is, okay, well, what are the arguments I'm making? What am I anchoring and rooting my own grievances or concerns in? And what type of proposals am I making for Muslims? The type of argument that I attempt to make is one that is is rooted in faith and belief. It appeals to things like Amr bin Ma'ruf and Ahyan and Munkar, commanding the good and forbidding the evil. It speaks about the examples of the prophets. It reminds us of the gravity of moral conduct and moral transgression. Um, again, it, it tries to bring us into conversation with the Sharia on its own terms, on its own terms. And then it relates the Sharia on its own terms to what is occurring in front of us today and why Muslims making certain decisions are acting in violation of those Sharia norms acting in violation of explicit Quranic writ. Where that lands me politically, I'm indifferent to. I mean, I'm not, I'm not personally invested in the success of any politician here. And I really don't care, to be honest with you, who wins sort of a local election or not. I, I'm far more concerned with the sustainability of Islam, right? And sort of the, the preservation of Islam and the sustainability of a vibrant Muslim community that is living the fullness of its faith without apprehension, without equivocation, without fear, and recognizes the various forces that are undermining that faith. Right? I think you had, um, you had Professor uh, uh, Joseph Kaminsky on recently talking about yeah. liberalism and the incommensurability yeah. of liberalism. Yeah. With Islam itself, right. right? I mean, these are these are important issues for Muslims to be in dialogue with, because if we don't even understand what these issues are, or why they are conflicts for us, we are going to refactor our faith in their terms according to those categories. We are going to adopt all of their verities, and we're going to lose our own. Well, let's talk about that preservation of Islam in the context of Muslims in the United States. Um, now, in Europe, we've seen a trend towards migration to the Muslim world. I mean, many French Muslims, uh, because of the, uh, the, the uh, I suppose, the intensity of the, the program of, of integration and uh, 
the encroachment of the state on the lives of of Muslims and their children, uh, many North Africans have decided that it's just now impossible to live a an Islamic life and flourish in in France. And so, uh, I saw when I was in Istanbul for a few months that um, a good number of of Muslims across Europe uh, had moved to uh, to Istanbul to start a new life. And they were, you know, these were family people who decided that enough was enough. In fact, I met uh, a number of highly qualified uh, Muslims from the States who did a very similar thing, who decided that uh, for the sake of their kids, uh, they were now going to move away from from the States. Now, I know that's not practical for the vast majority of of Muslims, uh, but do you observe a trend of Muslims, especially young family-minded Muslims who have decided that the West has now become so assertive when it comes to this uh, liberalism that um, you know they've got they've got no other alternative but to either migrate away uh, to uh, uh, to another country or, in the case of the United States, I suppose move to you know to one of those Republican states that although they know that you know there is intense Islamophobia that that accompanies that move. Uh, at least they will have more control over the most basic uh, lives of of their um, of their children, for example. I mean, is that a is that a discussion point in the United States? You know, it's not a real active discussion here today. I wish it was. Right. You know, it's interesting. In the '90s, that was a very active dialogue. The whole notion of not not necessarily where we should live domestically, but the question of yeah. what you know, why are we here? Like, what? Why yeah. are we here? What is the justification for remaining in this country? What are our objectives? What are our goals? What are we hoping to get out of this? Um, you know, you, you'd attend conferences, you go to the masjid. Many people spoke about that um, and they debated it and they deliberated it. And at the time, you'd still find scholars who would say things like, look, for Muslims to remain in non, predominantly non-Muslim land isn't permissible or advisable. Um, or if you're going to stay here, you have to remain here under certain conditions. And you have certain responsibilities that you have to dispense if you're going to remain. You know, that type of dialogue, again, was a very active thing. Um, I think that entire dialogue subsided almost overnight after 9-11 because the call of the day was to show that we were an indigenized community that belonged. And the sort of self-alienation some critiqued that dialogue as contributing to um, had to be put to bed, and so you don't you don't have an active dialogue where that's taking place. I think for religious Muslims in America, there's always a question of what's the best place for me and my family to grow up. I think for many religious Muslims in America, um, the, the the common sort of hijra location is Dallas, right? Where a lot of Muslims end up moving to Dallas because. Right. Because there are a lot of mosques there, you have many prominent imams there, um, you have large Islamic schools, and so the thinking is, hey, I'm living in an area that has a decent economy, um, cost of living is not as high as, you know, a suburb of New York City or Boston or LA or something like that, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I can, I can grow, raise my children in a space where there are just a really large number of Muslims and very active Islamic schools and mosques and all that, so... You're starting to see you're starting to see some of that movement. Um, in addition to that, you do have small pockets that are deciding to do something like intentional communities, 
And this is the type of thing that uh, Rod Dreher has encouraged for Christians, the Benedict Option, this idea that we're, we're part of a particular society, but what we're doing is that we're distancing ourselves from sort of the heart of some of the more active metropolitan liberal spaces. And instead, we're going to live in areas where we have our masjid, we have our Islamic school, um, sort of low cost of living. We all either sort of work remotely, right? So this is obviously much more tenable in a remote work society. Or alternatively, we find local jobs and we just try to live off what we make. And it's, it's about simple living. It's about being away from the hustle and bustle of the more aggressive, industrialized, technologically diverse spaces. Um, and it's a focus on sort of the outdoors and you know, you'll get some of the principles of things like Waldorf education sometimes <laughs> integrated into there. Um, but yeah, I, I think you've had some of that. Uh, I think Allentown, Pennsylvania is probably the best example of that, where some Muslims have tried to do some aspects of that. I don't know how successful it's been. I mean, I've been to Allentown, Pennsylvania. A lot of Muslims live there. It's actually a very active kind of suburb now. So it's, it's interesting even how those transitions and transformations occur. But in any event, I think there's been some dialogue around that. I think more likely what you're seeing is just Muslims saying, look, we're sort of here, live in suburban communities. How can we make this work? And how do we make it more manageable, more workable? So what you tend to find are social circles where people who have like-minded views and values get together and they remain in those spaces for the most part. And so if you homeschool your children, you find other families that homeschool their children, you form a homeschooling co-op or a homeschooling pod, um, you share resources, ideas, your kids come together, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm. Um, if you're in a Islamic school, you find a good Islamic school that reflects your values. You hope the other parents actually share those values whose kids are in that Islamic school, and that's how it happens. Um, as far as your community is concerned and your masjid, it's just a hodgepodge and uh, you know, a collection of people from all of those different spaces coming together. Mm. And so it's largely undifferentiated. And uh, you know, the, the challenge, of course, is that no matter how much you try to intentionally steer your children, your family to grow up with a greater religious sensibility, there's no sort of shielding them from the reality of what society and the world is like here. And so at some point, they're going to come into very visceral contact with society with a lot of these challenges that we've discussed here, and they're going to have to navigate and try to hold on to their faith and it's in a context where that's very inhospitable to it. Abraham Levine, great. It's been a fascinating discussion. Jazakallah khair for your time today. Jazakallah khair for, for having me on.